Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. We are finishing out our year looking at the Gospels with a slightly longer look at Luke because, well, that just felt seasonal for a time when most people are reading Luke in church during Advent. And joining us to walk through how to read the Gospels as stories is Dr. Janine Brown, who is the New Testament professor at Bethel Seminary. She is an expert on the Gospel of Matthew, so you'll hear Matthew drop into the conversation in the same way I cannot help but bring up Deuteronomy all the time. And if you are a collector of commentaries, you should make sure Dr. Brown's commentary on Matthew is on your shelf because it's fantastic. We are going to talk about different methods of interpretation with a special focus on the narrative approach to reading the Gospels, but more on that later. For now, since we are all contextual beings, let's listen in as Dr. Brown shares about her background and the events and people in her context that drew her towards biblical studies. I grew up in a, a, a conservative church context and I mean taught me faith taught me the Bible very grateful for that background I also learned some things that I've had to unlearn one of them is that my job is to be an apologist for the Bible I grew up and you're too young to know this whole bit but I grew up in the sort of the Bible wars the authority of the Mm. Bible inerrancy debates books on this topic Um, I grew up in the milieu of that. And so I thought I had to defend the Bible. I thought that was my job. And I took it on on very seriously as much as I could as a, you know, 12-year-old, 15-year-old, et cetera. When I realized that I could be an interpreter of the Bible and not its apologist, I was so relieved because it fit who I was. I love hermeneutics. I don't particularly like apologetics. It's not my thing. So When I realized that interpretation actually happened, you know, that people actually brought their context. And so you could talk about interpretations, certainly because the text sometimes has ambiguities, but also because people bring different lenses. Well, that just seemed fascinating. So once I figured out that the apology part of the job didn't have to be like my job description. That was great. How did you come to that conclusion? Like, how did that revelation actually happen? Because I think that is a hard, that's really quite a a shift. Yes. I think moving from my high school years, where in my church context, that was kind of the the thing you did. I mean, and especially coming out of that particular context and the denomination I was in, all those kinds of things. But when I got to college, I was involved with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And they did a lot of training on how to study the Bible. We did manuscript study where you'd wait in the, in the mail would come and you get a manuscript of Habakkuk or Acts or Philippians, like printed out, typed and printed and sent to you. So you could write all over it. Now I just print it on my computer. I do still <laughs> write all over that. I still do that. 
because I had a strong emphasis on interpretation and the skills to understand the text, it also it helped me to realize that interpretation was hermeneutics was where I really could land, even though I didn't know what the term meant at that point. It also was the case because I was coming from one tradition and bumping up against another tradition. University is quite reformed. I mean, think J.I. Packer and Knowing God. I read that early on in my fifth freshman year. And I come from a strongly Arminian context. So when I, you hear those clash of contexts, whatever you do with that, you realize, okay, there's another way to interpret. We're not in Kansas anymore. We might be in Minnesota. We're going to be somewhere. And that location matters. So that helped me to realize there were various traditions within evangelicalism within the Christian church, and all of those have a bit of a different lens. And I think that'll help me to realize, well, this is very fascinating. This is where I, and I could be an apologist for Jesus without being an apologist for the Bible, kind of teasing that out, realizing yeah. I could talk about my faith and and my relationship with Christ. And it doesn't didn't have to be all about what people do with the Bible, even though, of course, there's a strong connection there. Hmm. When did you know that you wanted your profession to be as a biblical scholar? Oh, goodness. Um, not until I got to seminary. This is back in 1987. I uh, went to Bethel Seminary to get more training. Uh, I knew that I had good training with University Christian Fellowship, but I had gone part-time on staff with them and realized if I wanted to pursue ministry and whatever forms I thought were available to me as a woman, I came from traditions that were very conservative but with women, so I knew I could be a Sunday school teacher, a missionary, or choir director. That's what I knew when I was in my high school years. I wouldn't have been able to tell you I knew that precisely, but that was sort of the categories in my brain that worked. There were no other categories. I mean, so it wasn't that I was just exempting myself. I was just exempted from. So staff worker with university was already like a stretch. Wow. Okay. But my male staff worker is recruiting me to do this. Well, you know, and I'd already kind of worked through some things and thought through how do I lead in a campus ministry as a woman? And all these were kind of ongoing conversations in my mind and with other people and with the text. And so when it came time to go to seminary to study more, I started an MA program, but I was essentially doing everything for the MDiv, but the preaching courses. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll bite the bullet and do that. My mentor, Bob Stein, who asked me to be his TA, wow, okay, suggested I think about doctoral work and teach at a seminary, like teach at Bethel Seminary someday. And, uh, you know, I had to do all sorts of thinking, praying. I would say I fasted for two weeks before I decided if I was going to teach summer Greek at Bethel Seminary because I didn't know if I could or should. And I didn't fast because I was spiritual, but I fasted because I couldn't eat for two weeks, you know, so (laughs) like I I prayed, but I couldn't eat. I was like, I, there, this is just such a big decision. And I knew it. And I was in a very conservative church context. So it took a lot of reflection and, and deciding before I fully knew, though I felt led and kind of feeling affirmed in that. And so I taught summer Greek and I thought, I love this. Hmm. So Bob said, Dr. Stein said, um, get your PhD. And I'm like, well, I, I won't, I don't know if I can write. He's like, well, go get your PhD and maybe someday you'll write or maybe you'll just teach and that's fine too. And but you'll probably find something to write about. Sure enough. First thing I wrote about was hermeneutics. <laughs> sure enough, you're you're a fantastic author and communicator. So it is always oh, funny when so we much. look backwards and and go, yeah. I don't have anything to say. I'm not a writer. And right. then several books right. later, here you are. <laughs> yeah, and he was in the middle of his really productive method, method and message of Jesus teaching, mm-hmm. synoptic problem. I mean, he just he's writing all sorts of stuff, and I was reading it. 
and contributing in terms of just research for him. And it's like, I could never be Bob Stein, which of course I'm not. Yeah. But yeah. I'm he he certainly was a great influence. So yeah. So it's interesting having uh, as your advisor and kind of mentor at that time being involved in the synoptic problem uh, yeah. with the Gospels, but you've veered over into a more narrative look mm -hmm. at Gospels. So how did yeah. that turn for you come about? How did you even know that there is such a thing as a narrative theology or a narrative approach? Especially in the mid-90s, yeah. which had been around for 10 years, 10, 15 years. The easy answer is that was my doctoral work. I was introduced to it in our in our methods seminar. So we had a seminar the first year that just walked through everything. You start with text criticism, you, you know, you move all the way through and you hit narrative criticism, rhetorical criticism, all sorts of criticisms. And I was just drawn to narrative criticism. The more complex answer is I was set up for that by Bob Stein and redaction criticism. And we did, we did synoptic, we had a synopsis, we underlined, we compared. That was really helpful work. And I, and I felt like I brought some of the redaction and critical work into my dissertation in the footnotes. It's the only place I could bring them in a sense and bring, I could notice some general patterns rather than very detailed comparisons. But I do that because I was sort of wired to think that way. And I think redaction criticism, the way Bob taught it, I mean, so that each gospel writer is a writer. You know, that's one of the key takeaways from redactional approaches out of form criticism. No, they are actually, they're editors, but they're writer editors. They have something to say, something to do, and they have some freedom with which to do it. And you can really hear Matthew. And so the, the, and the idea of reading all the way through Matthew and hearing Matthew, you're kind of set up to do that with redactional approaches. So you stop along the way a lot and compare. But there is a sense where compositional criticism, which came out of redaction criticism, really said, Everything matters, even what's retained from Mark in Matthew matters. All of that meant the whole became important. And I think that's mm -hmm. where redaction criticism really just, well, of course, then it makes sense to do narrative approaches. And I was drawn to Kingsbury's work in Matthew and, you know, of course, Mark, the Rhodes and Mitchie and Mark. And, and I, I found valuable things in all of that. Culpepper and John, you could just kind of glean different pieces and, and build this more eclectic kind of way of doing narrative approaches. Phew. Okay. That was a quick list of some important scholars. I will add links to their books in the episode notes so you can poke around if this idea of the narrative approach is new to you, but you want to know more. It's interesting because we're talking today about your recent book, The Gospel as Stories, or The Gospels as mm -hmm. Story. And mm -hmm. You say in the introduction, and this is this is interesting because I find myself in my own classrooms, I've had to go through this transformation of the way we've always approached the text versus the way I really want the students to be approaching the text. And yes. you talked about how it, it took a little bit of time in teaching the Gospels to get away from having the students study these eight to 10 verse segments as a way of proving that they understand how to interpret the Gospels. Mm -hmm. And and you've moved into this narratival approach so that they can explore these vistas. And I love the way that you, you talk about that. And it made me think, wow, I mean, that's what we're doing in churches. We read a couple pieces. verses, here's an itty bitty little piece at a time. And I think it doesn't always translate as a complete 
narrative. Um, so getting away from that vignette, kind of these short little yeah. vignettes is really important. And I wanted to talk to you at this time because it's right around Christmas. Mm. And I think we're doing lots of little vignettes, yeah. lots of Luke chapter two verses, one through, you know. <laughs> right. Well, and, and my crash or my manger scene in the other room from where I'm sitting is, of course, a harmonization of the Gospels, Matthew mm-hmm. and Luke. And I love it. It's beautiful. I got it for a wedding gift. I leaved him and I got it for a wedding gift. And it's just gorgeous. And But it mixes it all up. And uh, so harmonization, I mean, that's one kind of result of the smaller vignettes is that, that you can mix and match. Hmm, interesting. In in and out. And and it doesn't really matter. So I knew all the gospel stories growing up, but I couldn't tell you if one was in Matthew and where and why that mattered, or one was in Luke and where and why it mattered. That was that didn't matter in my context, it seemed. And that's what I want to say matters. Not that we can never do small pieces, but we have to help our students, in, in my context, seminary students who are preparing for ministry and going to preach and teach and guide and do theology, are they going to do it just from Paul? Or are they going to actually do it from the Gospels as well? And maybe even from the Old Testament, if we're lucky, right? Um, That's right. With all of that in mind, really important to help stretch them past those eight to 10 verses. And I did for like 10 years. I you know, required these little texts. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? This doesn't fit who I am. It's just, it is. And I'd have them do, of course, pay attention to context. Give me a section on literary context. Yep. But I found that that was the far more interesting part than the That's right. actual, I'm going to be a commentator. That's right. Uh, you know, I'm a seminary student, but I'm going to be yep. a commentator for eight verses. I'm like, I don't, I read commentaries all the time. I don't need to read a student's version of the commentaries. So I thought, what do I want to read? I just finished reading and I just bought to post grades for a course on Matthew. And they had for their final assignment, the first a plot theme analysis assignment they had was in um, Matthew 5 through 9. In other words, Sermon on the Mount and then the healing chapters. So it's 5, 1 through 9, 38. And they have to do a plot analysis, a theme analysis, and then actually do a set of sermons, three sermons or something, two to four sermons, that do something bigger. You can't just take one pericope. You got to somehow cover the whole terrain, essentially. So this last assignment, they could either choose the passion narrative, which is chapters 20 and resurrection narrative, 26, 28. And that seems deceptively small, but they're terribly long chapters, right? Mm -hmm. 26 and 27 of Matthew. Or they did 16 through 20, which is where I did my dissertation. It's a bold student who chooses that. (laughs) (laughs) Or they go find my dissertation or read everything I've written since or I've regurgitated (laughs) parts of it. Yeah. So, and that's, they're fun to read because it feels like then if they've really done their work, their sermons are trying to engage something of all of that text thematically. I mean, they can choose kind of how they want to do it. They have a rationale why they do this sermon this way. And I say, don't necessarily go sequentially. That's not, there's nothing pristine about that. I mean, you can go sequentially four times through a text rather than try to do every bit along the way because you're, you never hit every bit. You're always selective, just like the gospel writers had to be selective. We're selective. So name why you're selective and think more creatively about the project. And I, I love reading them far more than a pseudo commentary on a section of text. How do you think they, if they're engaging a project like that, uh, for the people who are listening to this podcast, how would you explain to them what your students are gleaning by having this kind of exercise as opposed to a detailed analysis of eight verses? What 
What kind of things do they start to see about the quality of the book of Matthew, for example, that they wouldn't see if they were focused on a much narrower text? I think the quick answer is they start to see the themes much more vividly. Because you can't see a theme of Matthew in eight verses. You can see what potentially is a theme, but how do you check if it's a theme? It needs to happen more than once. Even if it's really important in this one section, it may not show up anywhere else in Matthew. That's unusual, but it could happen. And a theme, by definition, is populated elsewhere. Even if it's just strategically placed themes, then you will have had to read Matthew 123. Emmanuel, God with us, in Matthew 28, 20, at last verse of the gospel, and I will be with you. If you want to get with you, you have to read the whole, chapters 1 and 28. And then you get to say, where else do we see something like that in the in the narrative? Not a lot. It's strategically mm. placed to, be, to show its importance. Mm. So I think themes, and it, it's interesting. I had my students, there's a little journal I had them buy that's just Matthew in the NIV. And I didn't realize it came with little summaries on various parts of the text pre-written that they had, you know, some other project got recycled into this, whatever. And I, you know, some of them, I, I shouldn't say out loud, but I cringed slightly. So I thought, okay, I'll have them rewrite five of these. And some of them, they didn't have to fully rewrite. They could rewrite what they thought. And one of the pieces that just warmed my heart was on chapter three, John the Baptist in Matthew. One of the themes that I heard in reading the rewritten parts, many of them chose that one was there's not enough kingdom emphasis here where, you know, the kingdom isn't mentioned. And yet in chapter three, verse two, it's like John preaches the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is at hand when Matthew first. And I just love that they, they just routinely said the kingdom seems underrepresented in this summary because they had to do a rationale for why they wrote it the way they did. And then I heard kingdom themes coming out and that was really fun throughout the project. Can I hear how they learned, were learning how to, pay attention to Mathian themes, and then communicate them. I was like, yay, this is why I do this. (laughs) It's a fun assignment. What a beautiful process of discovery for students to do. And I imagine, or at least I would hope, that once they learn how to do it with Matthew, they're eager to do it with Mark, Luke, and John. Maybe you even want to give it a go and read either Matthew 16 through 20 or Matthew 26 through 28 and see if you notice themes emerging that you've not noticed before. Do you hear something that seems important to Matthew because he repeats it? If you do this exercise, I'd love to hear what you learn. So drop me a line through my website, narrativeofplace.com. But let's get back to my conversation with Dr. Janine Brown. We're going to talk about how stories theologize, and I'll point out something that she actually mentions in her book, and it's about Aesop's fables. These were written in the 6th century BCE, so they were circulated widely and very well known long before Jesus was alive, and it's probably why Jesus himself quotes them in the Gospels. So these short fables often end with a moral lesson. So you get the story of the grasshopper who sees the ant working and tries to get the ant to go off and play during the summer day. And the ant says that it has to store up food for the winter. And then sure enough, the winter comes, the grasshopper has nothing to eat and goes to find the ant. And when the ant refuses to give the grasshopper food, this fable ends with, then the grasshopper knew 
it is best to prepare for the days of necessity. So while the Gospels cannot be distilled into such simple proverbs, there is a power in how the writer puts the story together. I did want to ask about the title Gospels as Stories, uh, Mm -hmm. because the word stories and then characteristics of stories that you've already mentioned in passing, like a plot and character and themes, Mm -hmm. uh, people tend to or can, some people I suppose can think of story as either made up or soft. It's like soft Mm. theology to a certain Mm -hmm. extent. So Mm -hmm. what is the power behind and the authority behind a story, especially as used in the gospel context? Yeah, that's a very good point. And I thought about that with my title because I know my general audience, I I don't want to spook anybody. Oh, she's just saying they're fiction. I explained that I think early on. Anytime you take a series of events and give them meaning or identify the meaning in them, whichever way you're going to go, you now have a story. So historical narrative is story. So, and I think narrative criticism has really gifted us the, this idea that we, we really see a, a crafted story. Even historical critical analysis of, you know, sort of the, whether the gaps in stories or the disjunctures, which is one of the way, in narrative criticism, you kind of try to hear how the disjunctures could work. That's mm-hmm. kind of a, a goal in the method. I don't want to be unrealistic to, to, to think that... I'm, we're not just trying to smooth out all the bumps, although some people have said that's what narrative criticism tries to do. But it's more about, does it? can it make sense? Is there a way that it could make sense, this bump in the story or this huge gap or something like that? Because there's always gaps in stories. Some there's just some bigger ones than others. So the idea of story can really help us think historical narrative. Anytime we narrate something that happened to us, it was a real event, we tell it as a story. We, we, we just have no other way of doing that, really. I mean, I suppose we do, but it, we just, it's not just a randomized thing. We tend to have a, a sequence. Um, people are important. The setting, you know, all those things that I talk about, setting, characters, events, plot, conflict. Yep. That's all important to story. So I, I think it's just a great container to talk about what the vessels are. And I, I appreciate you're talking about that, that soft container, you know, is this kind of a soft way rather than doing real theology in Paul, we're going to try to do theology and the gospels by a story. Well, and, and it's one of the reasons why early on or for quite a long time, theologizing in the gospels really focused on titles like Christologizing. So Christology yes. in the gospels is all about the titles, son of God, son of man, son of David. So there are debates even by Kingsbury in Matthew, who did narrative criticism, he, before that, had a little debate going on with another scholar on, so what's the most important title? He said, son of God. The other person said, son of David. I don't even remember. I mean, to me, it was like, they're both there. The son of David is pronounced in Matthew. Son of God is important. But what do those mean in context and how do they intersect? How are they storied? throughout yeah. the narrative or how the author is theologizing through story. Um, one example would be, we would never know Jesus as wisdom in Matthew if we just looked for titles. But in chapter mm. 11, he is aligned with wisdom by John the Baptist seeing the deeds of the Messiah or the 
Irga of the Messiah. And then um, those are aligned with wisdom's deeds, her deeds, Irga, in 11.19. So we have this little inclusio, 11.2 to 11.19 is a, a segment, really clear segment of the text. And it's it's bracketed by the deeds of whom? The Messiah, wisdom, the Messiah, wisdom, Messiah, wisdom. You know, we, so you wouldn't get that, though, if you're looking for a title. Yeah. But I think it's a very interesting theme and have developed that in my commentary on Matthew in a chapter. You're talking about like actual titles that Jesus is called in one of the gospels, but I think it flows really nicely to one of the other things that you point out in your book, kind of kind of towards the end in one of your later chapters about the modern tendency for abstraction. So whether it's by just looking at titles and then what does that mean, but we yeah. abstract concepts and then we just like circle around that concept quite a bit. And it's something that I think bothered me. I didn't have the words for it, but I think mm-hmm. it bothered me when I was going through seminary because I, I mm-hmm. it was it was the it's not connected to the whole. I kept wanting everything to be connected to the whole. Mm-hmm. And that's what I hear you keep coming back to yeah. uh, in your book. I don't know if I'm making that up, but <laughs> yeah. Was... No, and you're an integrationist, you know, that that yeah. and some of us have to do that. It's just like the integration has to happen. And yeah, this this sense that if we can find and extrapolate a line from a gospel, that's theology, because then it's explicit theology. But of course, in a narrative, so much is implicit, but it's real and it's there and it's meant to be communicated. I am kind of toying with, not toying with, but I'm working on a topic. I'm doing some lectures next fall um, at Acadia, and I'm doing something that the, the the main title is not jazzy at all, but it's something about embedded genres in the New Testament. So genres within other genres. So I'm doing Philippians 2, poetry, Christ hymn, Christ poem mm-hmm. in Philippians mm-hmm. 2. You know, does mm-hmm. Paul break out into song in, that's my subtitle or something, in, in Philippians. Household code in First Peter. And then um, in Matthew, like, okay, I'm going to do riddles in Matthew. There's a book called Jesus the Riddler. Tom Thatcher's done some work on this, primarily in John, but he's done it across the Gospels as well. And because I've been interested in this theme of wisdom and Jesus as wisdom, it's not surprising that you could look back at, say, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament and find various forms that then populate the Gospel. Of course they do. This was Bob Stein's early work was the method and message of Jesus's teachings. And he identifies riddles and parables and different kinds and different mm-hmm. forms. Mm-hmm that we can very much hear patterns in the Old Testament, these these um, genre patterns that show up within the Gospels. So, so I'm going to look at Jesus the Riddler, or Jesus' use of riddles, and if Jesus liked to teach in riddles, or often did at least, what does that say about Jesus? You know, it just got me thinking more about that question of, you know, not, not that we can draw, we should directly draw theology from a a kind of form in the gospels, but it fits a larger whole hmm. of uh, Jesus who is not always as clear as we might like. There's a hiddenness and that's a theme I pull out in Matthew and think about theologically. Uh, I did a little bit of that in Mark as well in the gospels of stories, because I thought about the, the figure of God in Mark. Hmm. You can look for theology. There's theology proper, right? Who is God in Mark? And that's not something you're going to find a lot of statements about. You can find a few more in Matthew. When, in Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll talk about who God is. 
and how you can trust this God so you don't have to actually be worried about food or drink. And you don't have to uh, pray long, lengthy prayers and repeat, 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 because as if God is a hard of hearing. So there's a various things you hear about God in some of that that are really powerful statements. Yeah. Don't get those in Mark. So you, we, we have to read much of the figure of God in Mark off of what God does and says, hmm. which is a narrative job. And the narrative is up for the job, I would say. Mark, hmm. I, I think Mark is not oblivious to the fact that what God says at the baptism and transfiguration doesn't have a parallel at the cross. God acts, but does not speak there. Mm-hmm. God speaks. God yeah. silent, but not absent. So I kept kind of thinking about that. What is Then what about our experiences when God seems absent because God is silent, but maybe not absent, mm. but certainly silent, <laughs> you know? Lots of ambiguity there. And of course, lots of people have written about the wonderful, scary, lovely ambiguity in Mark. So I had a lot of people to draw upon. Thank you all for being here. Next week, Dr. Janine Brown and I will talk about what we can notice in the Gospel of Luke by looking at the whole of Luke instead of a microscopic look at the birth narrative in chapter 2. In the meantime, if you are craving something that sounds more Christmas-y, check out my Advent series from season two. They continue to sit at the very top of the most often played episodes for Context Matters, so I know you'll love them. This podcast keeps growing thanks to all of you and the way you are spreading the word. But a special thanks goes out to my Patreon team. They faithfully support this project, making sure that the Context Matters podcast stays sustainable. People like Mindalyn Young and the Sion family deserve a special shout out. So thank you for being so amazing. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix. And Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you.